This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Now, today I'm going to begin the first in a two part interview that I've been looking forward to doing for a really long time. But let me give you some background context before we get started. Now, it's no secret that I'm a major proponent of regenerative agriculture and many of the different methodologies, practices, and concepts that this wide label contains. I believe strongly that our generation has an opportunity and an obligation to reconcile our food production system with the natural world that we depend on and to use our knowledge, wisdom, and access to resources to regenerate the health of the Earth's biomes as a primary function through which we produce value for our own species in the form of food, fuel, fiber, and medicine. With that said, I've long been observing an ugly manifestation of this advocacy creep into the online and media discourse around regenerative agriculture. As we hold up examples of success stories and best practices, Many of these discussions are also propped up on derogatory mentions of conventional or industrial farmers and farming practices. Some of these even expand into contests of who is more regenerative or who is doing better for the climate. And I'm certain that insults, negative assumptions, and general dismissal of the people and the practices in this sector does nothing to bring their voices to the table, and often serves to further separate our ideals in the Regen Ag movement from the people who we should be working hardest to welcome. And so for this reason, I've been speaking with conventional and industrial farmers for some time, not only to better understand the industry and the management practices that they use, but also to understand the people who manage these farms, the decisions and the challenges they face, and both the differences and commonalities that they have with the regenerative farmers that I speak to more regularly. In a personal effort to raise awareness about these issues and to introduce some perspective into the conversation that is going on now around the world about how we should produce food and manage the natural world that we've come to dominate, I reached out to a voice that I've been following for a number of months and that I believe represents very honestly the realities of modern industrial farming operations in North America. Jake Legwe is managing over 15,000 acres near Weyburn in southern Saskatchewan in Canada. He grows Durham, wheat, canola, peas, lentils, and flax, and farms with his family, including his wife and three young sons, and several other family members. Together, they're a third-generation farm that strives to continually improve to leave things better than they found them. Jake is also involved in various places in the agriculture industry as well. As a farmer and an agronomist, agriculture and the science and business therein is his fascination and passion. My intention with this interview needs a little explanation. Now, I've been reading Jake's blog on thelifeofafarmer.com since the beginning of the year. There are a few other places on the web where I've found confident and first-hand defenses of many of the pariahs of regenerative and organic agriculture, such as the use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides, GMOs, and the massive increase in the average size of farms. Yet Jake manages to do so in an articulate and compassionate way. I need to also mention here that I do not at all agree with or defend the positions that Jake promotes in this talk, but that's not at all the point. If you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you're already aware of my beliefs and opinions. The guests that I've interviewed over the last six years have done a much better job than I could at explaining them as well. My hope here is rather to reconnect those of us who are so susceptible to getting lost in an echo chamber of agreement with the humanity and the core motivations that we share with the very people we often think we oppose. The biggest takeaway from this conversation for me was just how similar Jake's vision for the future and the prosperity of his farm and business are to my own and to those of the most prominent voices in the Regen Ag movement. 
All too often, I hear us attempting to use the concept of long-term planning, environmental consideration, and leaving the land better for the next generation as proprietary ideals, when really these motivations are what we most have in common. The logical conclusions that we reach and the actions that we take on the land may look very different, but I believe that we're all doing our best with the information and the resources that we have at any given time. For me, this interview served as an important reminder that if I had been raised in Jake's family, in the time and the conditions that he's grown up in, I most likely would see the world and make decisions just as he does. I also believe that there is an undeniable logic that accompanies Jake's worldview and understanding of the story of his farm and community as well as the trajectory that it's on. I would really encourage you as the listener to put yourself in his shoes and consider the pressures and the responsibilities that he faces, which are so common, not only in the farming industry but in almost every industrial sector. I would challenge you listeners to be aware of your reactions and your impulses as we discuss topics that pique at our sensibilities. Do your reactions come from a theory that things should be different or from a deeper experience from making land management and business decisions? Are you prompted to correct Jake or me for that matter or enthusiastic to introduce alternatives and possibilities? How might you navigate a discussion like this yourself in your own life or in your own line of work? This interview was admittedly challenging for me, not because it was hard to speak to Jake, quite the opposite in fact, but because I wanted to ask questions that didn't lead into my own foregone conclusions or to jump in and express the way that I see the challenges in the food system and the industrial model of farming. For me, it was a reminder of how important it is to just listen and allow space for others, especially those who often feel that we are not listening to them, to be heard. Admittedly, there are a lot of things that I'd still like to do better after listening back to the conversation and the editing process, but I believe Jake did a fantastic job of articulating the way he sees the current difficulties and challenges in his line of work and the political system in Canada despite my learning curve as an interviewer. So with all of that heavy introduction out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Jake Legwe. So look, Jake, let's start right at the beginning. Can you give me a little introduction on your own life, your farm, and how you got started in this sector. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I started farming full-time back in 2010 after I graduated from university. Um, I farm here with family, have this entire time. We farm about 15,000 acres here today in southern Saskatchewan, which is a province in western Canada. Agriculture is obviously a big part of, of our culture over here because we are a big area. We produce a lot of grains and oil seeds and special crops. And so, you know, it's, uh, I know a lot of people who are involved in agriculture, even if they're farmers, not farmers, whatever. So currently I farm here with my wife. We've got three little boys, um, farm with my parents and a couple siblings are involved as well. And we've got a few full-time employees that are non-family as well. And uh, we grow canola, durum, hard red spring wheat, large green lentils, yellow peas, and flax. So we do have a bit of a diverse rotation. Um, you know, lots of farms don't grow quite as many crops, but I, I like the challenge of trying different things and, and I think there's some benefits to it as well. So um, yeah, I've, I've been involved in the egg industry since I was a kid. I mean, I grew up on the farm, was always helping dad wherever, wherever I could, cause it was always fun to do so. Well, I shouldn't say always fun, but lots of times it was fun. And uh, when I went off to university, I, you know, interestingly enough, in those days, in the early 2000s, um, when I graduated from high school, agriculture was really tough. Um, it wasn't talked about then like it is now. Grains were plentiful, cheap, um, so cheap, in fact, that it was, it was a pretty dismal way to make a living at that time. A lot of people exited the industry. And uh, it wasn't until the late 2000s that grain stocks started to get depleted um, because of years of low prices, farmers cut back production, right? I mean, that's economics 101. And suddenly grain prices started to come around. Some optimism started to come into the industry. And since then, it's it's been a lot more optimistic and, and it's been a it's been a better life, um, you know, out here growing grains. So so, yeah, that's a bit about my background, I guess, and 
I, uh, if you want to hear anything else, I guess, let me know. Well, so I would imagine you've seen quite a few changes on your own farm and within the industry in your area since you were a little kid growing up in that. How many generations back did your family own this land and how long have you been involved directly in the farm business and its transformations? So we're a third generation farm here. My, uh, my great grandfather farmed as well, but it wasn't here. My, my grandpa, he, uh, I, I think from what I understand, my great grandfather didn't particularly like farming very much. So I, I think there was some, maybe some tension there and grandpa went off and started his own farm and then ended up moving here, which is about an hour and a half away from where they first started. And so we've been here ever since. And there was livestock, of course, when they first started, like most farms had in those days. Um, they got here in about 1956 and bought the yard and the first, you know, home section here. So, I mean, they had dairy, pigs, chickens, uh, they had a donkey, you know, they had, they had the whole run of, of livestock and they, you know, produced their own milk. They produced their own beef, their own pork and chicken. And, and of course, you know, they had the, uh, crop production as well. And so, um, yeah, I guess the livestock were slowly phased out as dad took over in the late seventies and into the nineties. And then we finally, the the cattle were the last to go. Dad started selling them off in the early 2000s when I was still in high school, which was quite a shock, actually, when that decision was made. Um, but uh, cattle are a, they're a tough business to make a living at in the cold here. Um, winters are challenging. And uh, they're a lot of work and they're not scalable. One thing about crop production is you can scale it. You can get bigger machinery. You can hire employees to run it. But when it comes to cattle, you just have to be out there with them. And there's no really getting around that. So that's been one of the challenges of animal agriculture in Western Canada. And that's why we don't have them anymore. So that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like most farms back in the day, it was quite integrated. There were many different smaller enterprises. You were concerned with some of your own production as well as selling to the market. And then over time because of the need to scale and probably even get bigger like you said with lower prices for grain production previously it's like if, if you're not producing over a certain amounts uh or hitting yields per per acre it's just not going to be profitable at all has that always gone in hand with the subsidy system there in canada which is honestly something that i don't know nearly as well as the subsidy systems in the u.s and and in Europe now, but is is that making some of the decisions about where and how to scale on your enterprises? I wouldn't say so, no. I mean, I don't profess to be an expert on the subsidy systems in the US or Europe either, but I do know our, our system fairly well. And I would say that the subsidies we get are, I would hesitate to call them subsidies. What we get in Canada is we get a, uh, the government pays for part of our crop insurance. And there's a government-run margin stabilization fund called Acre Stability. Both of those programs have their place, but in all honesty, most of the time, if you're collecting crop insurance, you're already pretty far in the red. Um, I would say that those programs don't really encourage scale. In fact, they actually tend to work better if you're smaller. Um, and uh, that's about all we get. I mean, there's no government direct payments to farmers or anything like that in Canada. So it uh, it's a fairly small piece. And as a matter of fact, a lot of us buy private insurance anyway, because it works better. So and uh, so, yeah, we don't actually use a whole lot of government uh, intervention here in Canada. Gotcha. Yeah, that is different from how the system is set up here in Europe and from what I know of it in the United States, where direct payments are much more common and there are different incentives and uh, limits or, or even penalties, depending on how you manage your land. Um, let's go a little bit more in detail with the enterprises and how you run your farm, because I think it's important for people to get an idea about what the day to day routine looks like. What are some of the things that you're thinking about and investing in? Because you are on a pretty significant scale at this point. Uh, you, I believe, started with a smaller amount of land when you uh, inherited or took over the business from your father, which has since expanded to to what amount now? 
15,000 acres. Yeah. So when I started farming, we were about 9,500. Yeah, that's significant growth. I mean, that must have come with a completely different business model. I mean, like you said, this can scale, but I mean, going 15 times the size is is significant. What have been some of the biggest changes that you have seen since then? Yeah, well, I mean, agriculture has slowly um, evolved over the years to, you know, it used to be that if you were a farmer, you did it all, right? And lots of smaller farms are still that way. And a lot of people that do that love that lifestyle, right? They're the, they're the jack of all trades, right? They can fix anything on the farm. They do all the growing. They do all the selling. They do the bookkeeping. They write through. They do it all, right? I have a lot of respect for people that do that because it's it's a challenge. You have to try and be an expert in everything. And of course you can't. So as you as you get larger, you know, you can you can run a, a three, four thousand acre farm that way here in Canada still, mostly on your own with some help here at Harvest and probably some help with some bookkeeping and stuff like that. But at the size right now, about fifteen thousand, obviously there's more people involved. So leadership and management become far more important. And on a farm, you know, there's so many little things that we have to get right. Um, and that's where scale has been a challenge going beyond, you know, a certain limit, right? There are farms that are hundreds of thousands of acres now, but it's it takes an incredible amount of logistical work. You have to have some very strong leadership skills because every field still has to be profitable at a certain level. I mean, you can't just throw some seeds on the ground and have it turn out. So things still have to be run properly. Every job still has timing that is absolutely critical. I mean, that's one of the issues that's so challenging in Western Canada is our growing season is fairly short. So sometimes, you know, I've heard the, I've heard the phrase, the claim that uh, the only difference between a good farmer and a bad one is three days. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Getting the seed in the ground at the right time, getting the weeds sprayed, um, you know, getting all those other jobs done, getting into the crop to combine it at the right day. Sometimes that can make a, a difference of a million dollars at this at this scale. So, um, so yeah, it, it it is more challenging. It takes more work on a computer than it ever used to. Um, it used to just go out the door. And if you were, if you were at work on the farm in the 90s, and again, for a lot of smaller farmers today, you're outside. If you're not outside, you're not working. And there is a little bit of a stigma that still goes with that, with farming. And I, I would say probably across the world, honestly, that uh, a lot of the softer skills, the, the more cognitive work is is less work, you know, per se. But I would disagree with that. I, I mean, I would say that the the way to make a farm work at this scale, you, you have to spend a lot of time crunching numbers, doing budgets, um, planning things out to every detail that you can that you can conceive of and making sure that your people are are getting the right work done at the right time. So so yeah, those those would be sort of the broader level changes I guess. It it's just moved from somebody being outside all the time to spending a lot more time in the office and hiring other individuals to fill some of those some of those jobs that are more um labor intensive, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean Depending on what aspect of a farm business you're working on, the tasks might look very different and certainly not conform to sort of an old timey stereotype of someone going out there and, you know, shoveling out the barn or feeding the animals or, you know, even in a grain enterprise, like going out there with a sickle. I think there's still a lot of perceptions about what modern farming is or isn't uh, that people just haven't updated in a long time. And to go even further into that, what are some of the other things that you think that people who are not directly involved in farming or the industry get wrong, especially about large scale farmers like yourself? Well, we could probably be here all day on that, but I'll, I'll go over a few things. I mean, going back to the first thing you said, you know, some of the books that we have for, for my kids, you know, we we'll read them a story at night and there'll be farmer Jane with, with her, uh, with her couple chickens and a couple pigs and, and a horse and a couple cows and, and a red barn and that's and that's farming and a and an open station tractor right that type of farming disappeared 70 years ago and it's not coming back 
there's farmers, there's, there's individuals who work in other businesses or have a job in town or various things that have that as a hobby, but that's not farming, not at, not at the level where you're making a living from it. And there is a very distinct difference between what I would define as a hobby farm and what I would define as somebody who's making a living doing it. Um, so that's that's one of the misconceptions that I think people have. Now, on the on the one hand, I think there is a little bit of romanticism that goes along with that style of farming. Like that's how grandma and grandpa did it, right? Because most of us are only so many generations removed from the farm. A lot of us can remember those those days of grandma and grandpa's farm or mom and dad's. And uh, there is sort of a sentimental value that we like to imagine that agriculture is still that way, but it isn't that way anymore, and it, it shouldn't be that way anymore. Farming like that in those days was hard. It was very hard. It was a tough life. Those those people who did that in those days, I mean, the arthritis in their hands and the and the hips that they wore out and the knees and the backs, you know, their bodies were in rough shape by the time they were 65 years old. And there wasn't a retirement for a lot of them. They worked until they couldn't work anymore. And then they died. And that was normal. And, you know, they had a lot of kids because there was no way to stop it for starters, but also because they knew that some of them were probably not going to make it to becoming teenagers. And I think we forget about that when we romanticize the old days. It was very difficult to make a living, let alone actually prosper. Whereas today, now that we can scale now that we can get out of some of those very, very tedious and hard manual labor jobs, we can scale and, and we can actually make a good living at this if we do it right, but it's challenging to do so. You know, some of the other things that I, I think people miss about agriculture too, is I, you know, you, you talk about unknown unknowns, right? The things you don't know that you don't know. And I found one out here a couple of years ago I can't remember where I saw this, but uh, this individual was driving down a highway in the Midwest and they saw these signs on the edge of the field that said, you know, Bayer, Syngenta, Monsanto and, and all that. And, you know, they're posting about how these big companies are, are farming and they're driving out local farmers and they're buying up farmland. They had it completely wrong. What those companies were doing is they were advertising. So that farmer had bought products from those companies. And they put signs up along the edge of the field because the field looked awesome and they wanted to show hey this is what my product can do this is what my fungicide can do this is what uh you know my seed can do so the farmer had a nice crop because he was able to access these products in these other companies those companies didn't own anything to do with that farm whatsoever they just provided products to him so there isn't there isn't this big egg, this big bad business that's driving out small local farmers. Farmers have left agriculture. They've left the farm intentionally to go live a better life in the city. That's what our most of our parents did. That's what most of our grandparents did. They went to the mines instead because honestly it was a better life. As hard as that might be to believe when you think about the coal mines of the old days, but it was a consistent steady paycheck right farming isn't that way so the consolidation of farms isn't driven by corporate greed it's driven because people are leaving the farms and farmers like me who are still at it we see the opportunity and taking on more land to give you know for me i've got three sons and um my my sister who uh, her husband's full-time on the farm they've got a daughter and two sons as well we want to create the opportunity for any or all of them to come back here. Well, that's going to take a fair amount of land to do that. And most other farms in this area that I know of that have another generation coming, that's their goal too. So, so that's, that's what drives the consolidation and the growth in farm size. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important point that you make there. And I, I will agree a hundred percent that, there tends to be an over-romanticization of the past and other former ways of farming, um, that it is a very difficult lifestyle. I've worked enough both on industrial and smaller scale farms to know just how much labor goes into that. And 
Uh, it's not something that most people want to get into, and it's not particularly well paid, especially uh, on the laboring side. And there's a good reason why this as a business certainly has moved away from that way of managing land. But at the same time, it's still the vast majority of people who work in farming around the world, 60 to 80 percent, depending on where you are, uh, who do not use industrial inputs or machinery and are still you know, mostly managing pretty small plots of land, like five acres or five hectares or less. Um, and so this, you know, continues to to represent a very small population of farming. But, you know, with that said, we'll continue to focus on on large scale farms and the industrial um, inputs and machinery that that is necessary to manage land at this scale. Um, and one thing I'm, I'm concerned about, too, is while I completely understand your point that this is not motivated by greed and the expansion of uh, the amount of land that you take on, it must have a marked impact on the communities, the rural communities that you're a part of, and the culture as more and more people leave to cities, uh, less and less people manage the land. Have you seen or been affected by this yourself? Well, absolutely. I mean, the decline of rural Canada, Western Canada is, well, it's been going on for as long as there's been a rural Western Canada. And it is it is hard to watch. I mean, you know, the town that I live closest to, it's called Fillmore. I went to school there. My dad went to school there. It's declining. Um, and it's been declining for a long time. And I wonder, you know, my kids go to school there right now. I'm not sure that they'll be there in high school. We might have to go to Weyburn, which is, you know, the it's not that big of a city, It's but it's close enough that we could go there. Now, why is that happening? Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Um, what can be done about it? I don't know. It's a it's a real challenge. I mean, even a city like Weyburn, which which I just mentioned, it's it's about twelve thousand people in Saskatchewan. That's a city. We have a pretty small population out here. Um, the next nearest city is Regina, which is our capital, and it's only an hour away, right? So even from Weyburn, a lot of people will travel to Regina, and buy their groceries, their clothes and everything there because it's cheaper, right? There's more options. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily that farms are getting bigger that's resulting in, in small towns declining. I think it's that it's become so much easier now to travel to bigger centers and now certainly to just ship stuff to your house. And in all honesty, living on a farm these days has its big disadvantages. We don't have great internet. Um, we can't get stuff shipped to our houses. In fact, I have to get everything shipped to my sister's house that lives in Weyburn because places won't ship to PO box numbers, which is all we have for an address, right? So, you know, I, I can see the draw, right? I can see the draw of moving to the city. More services, cheaper stuff. And when, you know, my son's playing hockey and another one's playing soccer and and it's a lot easier to get to those events when I don't have to drive half an hour to get to the city. And in the little town of Fillmore, most of those things have gone away. We haven't had a, a young kids hockey program there in, oh gosh, probably 10, 20 years now since I was young. So, you know, and the, and the churches are closing and the grocery store is struggling and all of that stuff. But it's also maybe worth pointing out too that my dad went to school in Fillmore, but his older sisters, he was the youngest of four, his older sisters went to school in a very tiny town called Talmadge, which is a little bit closer. Talmadge hasn't existed as a town since 1960. So it's been in decline ever since settlers first came, as it got easier to travel. And I'm just not sure that there's any easy way to stop that without really getting the government involved and that comes with a lot of you know, unintended consequences too. So I wish I had an easy solution yeah, for that, yeah. but I don't. Yeah. No, and I definitely don't mean to point the finger at the expansion of farms for rural decline solely, right? There's so many technological and you know even um, legislative processes that are making this uh, more of a problem or accelerating the decline. Um, yeah, so... I'm I'm curious what you see as some of the biggest challenges that you have on your operation then, because the technology is a real asset on one side, 
And as you just mentioned, the decline of the communities and the different options for people to work in cities or, you know, to get cheaper goods in other places is probably making it difficult to attract, let's say, the next generation to do this line of work as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely the labor issue in agriculture is a is a big one and it's going to get worse. <clears throat> we've been somewhat fortunate on our farm. We we've, we've been able to attract good um, workers and we look after them. We treat them as a part of the business and and I believe we pay them uh, in a fair way and they seem to like working here. Um, we've got uh, yeah, we've got a really good crew here. And, you know, it's also worth remembering that, too, that as farms have declined in number, we've still had to hire people to fill in those gaps, too. Right. So, you know, we have we have brought people here by doing that as well. So it's it's worth remembering that. But but labor is it is a huge challenge for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that as a farmer in a, in a small community that you almost have to accept as a part of your life is you're going to volunteer for stuff right? Basically, from now until you're too old to volunteer anymore, you're going to be helping out with local events, you're going to be helping out with the local boards, the rec board, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, my wife's on the board for the preschool and the recreation board. My sister's on the recreation board. Um, I serve on, uh, you know, as part-time for ambulance, because we have a small town local ambulance service as well. There's a volunteer fire department. All of this stuff, is can only exist because of volunteers so that is something that draws a lot of our time but we feel that it's important so anyway yeah i mean i feel like those are some of the the challenges of a small town uh rural saskatchewan life for sure yeah i'm sure that's the case in a lot of other small places where the type of services that you take for granted in a larger population center just aren't given and it's remarkable that people still continue to give freely of their time to make sure that these services exist and that, you know, events get organized and community is still solidified around something that is getting harder and harder to to keep intact. Uh, I think it's, it's wonderful that people continue to to put in those efforts, um, but more from the business side. Uh, so we're not dealing with the same complexities and nearly as much management of ecosystems and all of the interconnected links of them you're i mean i'm under the impression that this is much more looked at as a production uh enterprise and the ecosystem and the environment need to be managed probably in a much different way and from a larger distance than people who are on the ground all the time <laughs> with the plants with the animals you know and 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 dealing with it on a smaller scale what are the challenges that you have from the business side of, of producing the crops that you that you grow? Yeah, well, one of the, I think it may be a good way to preface this is to say um, something that a friend of mine pointed out years ago, and I, I think it's very true. If you treat your farm as a way of life, it can be a very bad business. But if you treat your farm as a business, it can be a great way of life. We often think of farming as a lifestyle. But farming has to be a business first, even when we're doing it with family. So, and you know, we're running multi-million dollar businesses these days, and even we often forget that, that these, these operations that we're running today, they have a lot of complexity, a lot of places you can make mistakes. So the way we manage has to be exceptionally detailed. So, you know, I guess maybe if I just kind of run through the season, I can kind of talk through um some of the technologies that we use so when we when we go into the field at at seeding we roll out there with our you know on our farm we have a couple 80 foot uh, wide air drills we still use a bit of the american imperial system here in canada we use a bit of a mix between metric and imperial so hopefully that doesn't get too confusing but so we we go out there with these machines and in our tractor cab i've got several screens in the cab right so i've got a screen measuring how many seeds are coming out of that air tank going to each opener, right? Each shank that cuts a hole in the ground and drops the seed in and then packs behind. So I know how many seeds are going out. I've got a monitor that the tractor is using to control its hydraulic system, its electrical system. It's steering by itself. 
Um, it's controlling its own throttle to maximize or to minimize fuel use. Um, and then in the monitor that controls the air cart, which comes behind the drill, that holds all the products, right? The fertilizer, the seed and everything. That monitor has maps built into it that tells the air drill, okay, in this spot, we're going to see, you know, 150 pounds of nitrogen fertilizer with the crop. In this spot, it's going to be 30 pounds per acre of nitrogen fertilizer. It's variable rate across the field, right? So I can take a field that might be a thousand acres in size, and I can break it down into basically seven different zones that are each getting treated differently. So we're actually a lot more granular than our grandparents ever were. We're taking small, small areas and treating them differently from each other because our soils are so variable and they change from, you know, from here to hundred feet away, they can change. So our air drill is doing all of that automatically. So as you're sitting in the cab, you're basically just monitoring things and you're making the turn at the end of the field. And you're also watching for any wet spots because you drive that unit into one of those and it's not going to be good. So there is a little bit of management that goes on with driving it, but it's not quite like it was 20 years ago when you actually were still driving it. But the acres we can get done as a result per day have substantially increased because of operator fatigue. So that's sort of the seeding side of it. Once the crop is in the ground, we go out and we spray all the weeds that have come up in that crop, right? So the first thing I guess I should have said that we do is we spray the fields first and we kill all the weeds that are out there. We get the crop seeded, it starts to come up. Once it gets to a certain size, then we'll go out and spray it with herbicides to kill those weeds. Now the sprayers are just as technologically advanced as the drills in a lot of ways. We can do the same variable rate application with the sprayers that we can with the drills when it comes to adding more fertilizer, perhaps putting a fungicide on to control disease in that crop. Now, sometimes our crops, especially the more disease susceptible ones like lentils and peas, where the breeding hasn't been as advanced because there's less, I guess there's less return for the companies doing it. They are very susceptible to disease. They're very susceptible to competition from weeds. There's a lot of different insects that like to go after them. So we're monitoring these crops all year. We're walking in the fields. We're looking at uh, satellite imagery to identify areas of the field that aren't performing very well from a vegetation standpoint. And then we can try and decide why that is. We're taking samples of the crop during the growing season called tissue samples. And we're sending them away to a lab to see, okay, does this crop have the nutrients it needs to get itself to harvest and to produce the best possible yield? So all the way through the summer, that's what we're doing. We're trying to maximize the yield of that crop while also maximizing our return on investment because sometimes max yield doesn't mean max profit either. We have to try and balance that, which is challenging. And as we go, everything that these machines do in the field is uploaded to the cloud. So on our farm, we use a lot of John Deere equipment. They've got a, they've got a pretty good system for that, actually. It, it's probably one of the best ones out there. It's called Operation Center. So at any given time during the year, I can log into that and I can see every application that any of our machines have done in real time. I can see the machines out in the field if I'm not in one. I can see the rate per acre of the different products they might be putting on. I can see their fuel use, engine load, uh, diagnostic codes, everything. I can see it at any given time. And then we're also tracking all of those applications. We want to know how much we spent. We want to know which products we use and the totals to make sure that we're tracking every dollar that goes into that crop. Because we need to know what our potential profit margin can be. We need to make sure we're not overspending, but we also need to make sure that we're giving that crop everything that it needs to make it to harvest. Then we usually get a nice little short break after we're kind of done looking after the crop, as long as there aren't any more insect problems that show up until harvest starts. So then we go out there with our combines and that's when we need everybody. Um, you know, my wife, my younger sister, um, got some retired individuals that come out and help us out at harvest time too. We need people in machines. Um, and again, the combines, they're controlling their own speed. They're steering themselves. They're controlling the height of the header, like the unit that sits in front of the combine that cuts the crop and brings it into the combine. All of that stuff is being controlled 
um, by the combine itself. And yet there's still a lot that goes into operating one of these machines. The amount of bushels that you're putting through those machines per hour is absolutely remarkable. I mean, we can, we can pick off more in a day with our four combines than dad would have taken off when he was really early in his career in a whole year in terms of bushels. So it's, it's pretty remarkable, but we also have to get the grain out of the field and into the bins or into the bags or wherever we're going to put it. Maybe we'll haul it straight to town. Everything that comes off that field is weighed by our grain cart as a scale on it and uploaded automatically to the cloud as well. So we take all the grain off. We try to get it off quickly, as quickly as we can to maximize its quality because if it gets rain on it, you can absolutely ruin a really nice crop as we've had happen before. And then that's it for combining. And then we spend basically from that moment until the snow flies preparing for next year, um, going in and tilling up low spots, um, applying some fertilizer, maybe spraying for weeds, getting residual products on that will control weeds through part of next year as well. Um, there's lots of, lots of different things we can do, drainage work. And then, uh, then it's winter and we start preparing for next year, the budgeting and the fixing and the hauling grain and everything. That's, that's sort of the cycle of a year. And those would be sort of, I think some of the key technologies that we use. One other one I might mention that I think is pretty cool is during the growing season, we've got a number of weather stations that are out in the field. So they're measuring, you know, soil temperature, air temperature, relative humidity. They've got a little, a little sensor that has like a, like a leaf shape inside the crop canopy. And at any given time, it's measuring how wet that leaf is. So if the leaf stays wet for long enough, the risk of disease goes up and that can help us make our fungicide decision. But the most important piece of that weather station is a soil moisture probe. It goes a meter deep into the soil and it's measuring soil moisture at all different levels all the way down. Now, I mean, on 15,000 acres, we have a lot of different types of soil, a lot of different zones. So, I mean, realistically, we should probably have 15,000 of them, but half a dozen already does a pretty amazing job of telling us how much moisture is in that soil at any given time during the growing season. So instead of making decisions based on gut feeling and how I think the crop looks, I can make data-driven decisions based on probabilities. How much moisture do I have in the soil? What's the odds of getting a certain level of yield? What's the odds of getting more rain? Um, I can run all those calculations and decide, does it make sense to make that next input application? So it's all, it's all becoming very sensor-based, and I think that's going to continue. Um, I think it won't be very long before our sprayers aren't going to be broadcasting herbicides and insecticides and fungicides anymore they'll be individually spraying weeds inside the crop canopy we're almost there now so that's going to cut the amount of herbicide we apply by potentially 70 to 80 percent which is a huge cost savings for us and i mean it would be nice not to have to spray as much too even though these products are very safe it's still better to keep them out of the environment if we can and uh, that'll allow us to do so so yeah, I think those are those are some of the key technologies, I guess. Uh, that's a really cool overview of, of the things that you're constantly monitoring and thinking about throughout a season. And I can imagine, too, why there is some disconnect now between this style of farming and what people's ideas are of past. Is At this point, you're a high-tech technician as much as anything. I mean, you're dealing with machineries and computers. Uh, machinery and computer and, and data sets and constant monetization uh, all the time. And this seems like so much more of a, an engineer's job than what people would associate with a land steward, right? Um, do you miss anything about the way that your, your father or your grandparents used to farm? Or is this just what's necessary now to, to produce on this scale? Honestly, I don't miss it at all. And uh, <laughs> if dad was if dad was sitting here beside me, I mean, he's still full time on the farm, too. He would he would tell you the same thing. And as a, as a matter of yeah. fact, I, I asked this question to my grandma, too. Like, what do you think about the way farming is done today versus how you guys used to do it? She's uh, would she be 90, 93 now, I think. And she said, this is what you guys do is just awesome. Like she said, the amount of work like 
that they had to do. You know, I mentioned this before. It 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 was intense and it was a tough life. Um, you know, if if you got a disease outbreak in a lentil field 20 years ago, well, that was the end of the lentil field. It's gone, right? It was just going to come in. Uh, often it was it's a disease called anthracnose. It would come in and it would just wipe the crop out. Now, ahead of time, we can go in with a fungicide and spray it, and we can protect that crop. When they used to get grasshopper outbreaks in the 80s, and we don't have, like our products aren't a lot different than theirs were then, but they are. there are some new innovations that have really changed so we control insects and fields. Again, they would honestly wipe crops out. Um, you know, when, when wheat varieties were fairly new to Western Canada, they would get rust come in. It's a it's a pretty bad disease. And that would be it. And that's Western Canada wide. It would wipe a crop out. So our breeding, like our crop breeding, the genetics have improved so much that we actually have built in resistance to rust now. And our fungicides have improved. So we have the ability to grow crops in times that they never could. So it makes for a much steadier, you know, success of the business rather than this year's good. This year's a complete write-off. The next year is mediocre. We still get a lot of that, but it's not nearly at the level that they used to deal with. So, no, I don't miss it. Um, what we're able to do today, I think, is really cool. And we're applying less um, toxic herbicides and all different types of pesticides than they ever used to. Um, we're applying them at lower rates. And we're applying them to parts of the field that actually need them, you know. And uh, yeah, our fertilizer rates have gone up. Yeah, we're using more pesticides than we ever have before. But the production increases that we're getting, and we can prove the food safety level is far better than it ever used to be. Um, this is all positive stuff. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that perspective. And and we'll we'll get more into the products that are used and the backlash on herbicide and pesticide and nitrogen and all those in a, in a minute. But I want to play devil's advocate for a second because some people would argue that needing all of these inputs, especially the crop protection chemicals, might be more of an indication that what is being grown there is either indicative of broken ecological cycles as for the presence of pests and others, or simply the way of growing it in massive monoculture fields is just not a sustainable way to produce this type of thing. How do you respond to that? You respond to that in a few different pieces, I think. Um, so in terms of do we need these products to grow our crops? Well, no, we could grow them without them, but our yields would be terrible and we would have really inconsistent production. There are farms that still do it. Um, you know, they, they'd be what you know as organic production. Um, there's a few of them around. Some of them do it well. Um, they uh, they still use a lot of stuff. Don't get me wrong. They have they have sprayers too. Um, they're just spraying. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, there's no illusion that organic farmers don't use any chemicals. That's not yeah. the case at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So and and the ones that don't, the ones that just say nope, I'm just not doing any of that. I'm just going to plant my seeds and I'm going to come back at harvest time. Yeah, most of them are out of business now, and the ones that aren't either have another income stream that allow them to just play around or they've given up and gone back to conventional agriculture. It is very, very difficult to prevent weeds from taking over your crop. That is still our number one enemy in crop production is weeds. They're hmm. very difficult to control. They continually adapt to the things we use to try to control them. And uh, we're always having to come up with new ways to get after them. So, could we go without a lot of our products? Yes, but a lot of people would starve to death as a result, and we would all probably be out of business while we're at it too. We would actually have to be at a much larger scale because our income per acre would be that much less, right? That would also mean that we'd rip up a lot of land that has been put back to grass or other things um, because we need more production, right? If you If you limit the production of agriculture, that means that we must find it somewhere else, right? That's just that's just the way it works, and that's the way it's always worked. What I think people don't understand is that agriculture is not a natural system, period. It never has been. 
when we started agriculture, at least as far as we know, about 10,000 years ago, um, they found these plants in the wild, right? In, in the Fertile Crescent and what we now know as Iraq and Syria. Um, you know, they found wheat, barley, lentils, peas, and, and they started growing them, flocks as well. Um, but they found they got a lot better yields if they kept the weeds out of them, right? They found they got a lot better yields if they used animal manure. Of course, they didn't know that the crops needed nutrients necessarily. They didn't know what nutrients were. But farmers have always recognized that crops need inputs to be more successful, right? Now, I mean, the, the whole idea of monocropping on large scale, there is no other way to do it. There's individuals who are trying to grow two crops together as an intercrop, right? That's being touted as sort of a regenerative practice, but that's still only two crops, right? On our doorstep, we have 27,000 acres of what we call community pasture. So it's basically natural grassland. It was broke at one time and then it was returned to grass because it's, it's just too tough a soil to farm, right? So it's mostly grass out there. Um, it, our soils will eventually return to that state if left alone long enough. And it's very low production, right? I mean, the amount of cows per acre you can put on that is pretty limited, but it's the best thing for that land. Um, so, you know, you could, uh, I, I wouldn't call that a monocrop, but it is mostly grass, right? So sometimes we get wrapped up in this being bad and this being good. The reason we apply so many of these products to our crops is because we get a return on investment for doing so. We don't have to, we aren't forced to. The crops probably won't die if we don't do it. It's just our production will be commensurately a lot less. If we wanted to go back to livestock production and put all of our land into grass, I mean, yeah, we could, um, you know, but people seem to have a problem with animal agriculture as well. So, you know, that's a whole other issue altogether, but. Um, oh man, wherever you step, there's gonna be a minefield. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. So to kind of go a little bit deeper into that too. So with the indications that, you know, you will get a much better yield or return on investment for using certain products. Um, how does that figure in with what you know about from the data that you're getting and, and all the monitoring that you're doing, the health of the soil itself, but also, also of the ecosystem around and whether or not uh, further collaboration to improve ecosystem function might be able to mitigate some of the products used or uh, the way that things are spent or invested on in the long term versus the short term. Yeah, well, I think uh, the way that I would probably think about that is to try to imagine what this area was like before settlers came, right? So you had basically mixed natural grassland and you had large ruminant animals, bison, grazing that grass. Um, trees really didn't exist here at that time. They do now because we don't allow burning anymore. Lightning strikes would regularly start fires in the grass, would burn the dead stuff off the top and burn down any trees that were around. You know, I, I mentioned earlier the little town called Talmadge that my aunts went to school in. There was a picture that I saw um, from the town looking out and we farmed some land right around there now. And it was absolutely bare. There was nothing out there. No trees, no shrubs, no nothing. And that wasn't because of farming. That was the way it looked back then. So the way that we, so the way to imagine how um, things could be more natural in agriculture today is to try to imagine what it looked like back then. Now, the best way, of course, I could see to do that would be to have those large ruminant animals back again and, and mix cattle in with, with the crop production. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're kind of that whole thing's getting demonized as well. So that doesn't seem to be a solution, but there also has to be a market for it. I mean, in the last, what is it, 30 years, 40 years, we've reduced the area required for meat production in the world by an area the size of Brazil. So there isn't a need for that many more cattle to exist in Western Canada. There isn't a market for it. So maybe you could say, well, then the government should step in and say, thou shalt, you know, mix livestock in with your crop production. But holy man, that starts to get a little bit scary when the government steps in at that level. Um, we do, we do soil tests, right? I mean, we go out there, our agronomist uh, 
takes soil samples every year on most of our land and she sends sends them into a lab and they analyze you know all the different nutrients that are in the soil there's a, a there's a soil health test that you can get them to do as well it's still pretty new the, the thing is that soils are still not well understood right we don't exactly know what used to live in our soils we don't exactly know what lives in them now it's a incredibly complex web of different types of organisms and you know until we understand what actually lives in there and what they do it's very difficult to say that we should have one type of organism living in there versus another because they all kind of have their place right and i would also say that those soil health tests that we've done we haven't found any difference between you know a test that we take out of one of our fields and a test that comes out of the community pasture for example there's no obvious difference there so so what is it then right like what what has changed necessarily in our soils i mean the, those natural grasslands the way that they fed animals was the animals would eat the grass they would defecate on the grass and then that's how the everything keeps getting cycled and and returned right the only way to produce food for other people to eat is to take stuff from the soil and the air take it off the land right and take it somewhere else whether that's animals whether that's grains you're still taking stuff out of the ground and shipping it elsewhere so you have to return those nutrients somehow if you're going to take phosphorus and potassium calcium magnesium manganese all those all the nutrients that a crop needs if you're going to take those out of the soil somehow they have to come back nitrogen's easy we can just get it out of the atmosphere and and, and put that fertilizer in the ground these other ones are very complicated and we don't even necessarily understand how a lot of those nutrients are released into our soils right now but regardless if you're taking them out they have to go back in or you're literally mining your soil so that's why we need fertilizers and that's why our crops need inputs we're taking inputs out of the ground right and unless we're all going to go back to living you know in in, in tribes and hunter gatherers um we're not going to be able to get away from that and I, I don't think 8 billion people are going to be able to live that way or want to, for that matter, or should want to. Yeah, I, I totally agree that there needs to be a, an understanding of everything that goes along with the reestablishment of these cycles. And until that time, we do need to make pragmatic decisions about how to return what is taken from the soil and agriculture and reestablishing migration patterns of birds and livestock and and all these other elements that used to be present on that land which were part of the cycle that allowed this to to sustain itself and to improve uh there's a lot that goes along with reestablishing that and there are big changes in lifestyle and policy and land management and probably population that would come along with that which very few people understand the implications of and from a pragmatic standpoint i completely understand what you're saying as well and that kind of goes along with what we were talking about. Uh, you made a really good point that I think more people need to internalize is that agriculture is inherently a natural or unnatural, right? And um, if we started by making simple changes in the texture and the uh, weed competition of soil, then seemingly the logical progression is to the efficiency and the mechanization and the industrialization of land management that these larger farms now represent. And if you accept the basic premise of the first idea of making these little changes in order to favor some of the things that we need for food stuff, then of course, moving forward, doing it as efficiently as possible is where you're going to end up. Um, but then we get into the weeds of how and to what extent and what levels are appropriate for the production of foodstuffs, calories, and the things that we need to, to sustain a population. You have written in one of your previous blogs that we have all the technology and skills that we need to feed a growing population, provide inputs for biofuels, and feed livestock on the planet with a minimal impact on the environment. We just need governments to step out of the way. Now, when it comes to what you are allowed to use and the restrictions put on that, 
where, at least in, in Canada, because I really don't have a, a clear understanding of what those are, where do you feel the most pushback on what you're allowed to do for the health of your land and your business? So <clears throat> we've been pretty lucky in Canada in that for the most part, farmers have been mostly left alone by governments to do what we feel that we, that is, we can do what is best for our given area that we farm in. That's changing. Our government is becoming much more interested in getting involved with the uh, goal of helping the environment, apparently. So the first place that they've really started to go was eliminating products for us to be able to use, seed treatments, insecticides. Now, I'm not going to deny that some of these insecticides are necessarily nice products. They aren't. They're, they're pretty broad spectrum killers. But when you have a grasshopper infestation that's going to wipe out your crop, you don't have a lot of other options. Um, so rather than eliminating products that are still beneficial, let's invest in creating new ones that are better. For going back to the grasshopper example again, we have a better product available. It costs two and a half times as much as the old insecticides, but it's very selective. It only kills animals that actually chew on that plant. Now, you could you could spray it out on a field full of bees and it wouldn't hurt the bees, right? That's that's how safe of a product this is. But again, when we're considering economics, we have to make that call, right? If I've got 15,000 acres and I'm gonna put a product that costs $15 an acre versus one that costs six across that farm, that's a, it's a tough decision to say that, yeah, I should go and spend an extra several hundred thousand dollars on this other product, right? So maybe that's a better spot for the government to say, hey, you know, this product is is a, is better for the environment. It's better for all these other things. It's better for the applicators. Really, it's better for us to apply, right? It's a lot nicer. Um, let's just give you a couple bucks an acre off of it or something like that, right? That's a much better place in my mind to get involved in and say, hey, we're going to incentivize a better product. And we know that it's better, right? It's been around for a few years. It's not, it didn't just come out this week. That's one example. The more significant example and the, and the much more important one is, is the question of nitrogen. Now, I mean, our government isn't going to the level that the government in say in the Netherlands is proposing to go and thank God for that. But they are going in a direction where they want to limit the amount of nitrogen we apply in our fields. They've been adamant that they're saying that they wanna reduce emissions from nitrogen fertilizer by 30% by 2030. 2030 is not that far away. Right now, we don't know how much, what level our emissions are. We don't know what they were, and we certainly don't know what they're going to be this upcoming year. It depends on the soil, it depends on the moisture, it depends on the crop. And all of that can change rapidly. I mean, if we get a, a multi-inch rain event, we can lose a fair amount of nitrogen, but you and I can't tell if that's gonna come tomorrow or not. We certainly can't tell if it's gonna come sometime in the next growing season. So to make decisions about how we're gonna apply nitrogen based on an environment like that, which is chaotic in the, in the deepest sense of the word, that's very challenging. So that's, you know, that's the issue that I've been addressing in, in some of my writings and, and certainly in a lot of the other places that I involve myself in the agriculture industry is that the government wants us to cut back nitrogen fertilizer emissions, that will necessitate a reduction in the use of nitrogen fertilizer, period. That's where we're at right now. The only way that that's going to not happen is for us to, first of all, have a much longer timeline on this, right? 2030 is too close. We, we need years and years of detailed research collecting greenhouse gas emissions directly from soils all across Western Canada to understand where we are today. Under a whole bunch of different scenarios, right? This much N went on versus this much versus that much with, and maybe this nitrogen was treated with, they're called enhanced efficiency products and they coat the, the, the little prill of urea and uh, they slow down its release and that sort of thing. These are expensive products. And unfortunately, they don't seem to have a yield benefit. We aren't losing enough nitrogen to the air to actually impact our yields. But we are losing enough that there's a detectable amount going in the atmosphere, which we don't want, right? So 
I think the way to address that would be for the government to come in and say, okay, maybe we just need to subsidize the cost of these products, these enhanced efficiency products. You're not going to get cheaper fertilizer, but the treatment that goes on it, we could help out with that, right? That might be a way to address it, but the amount of money that they've talked about putting forward into a program like this, it's pennies across Canada where we have 190,000 farms. So right now we have a, a huge communication gap problem between farmers and the scientists and academics that work with them and the government. And so far there hasn't been a great willingness to listen, I would say, from the government. Now, I think they were quite surprised at the level of pushback that they got from actually just ordinary Canadians on this subject. And of course, the protests going on in the Netherlands sent a pretty clear signal as well. The job of a farmer is to minimize the use of inputs and maximize the use of outputs. That is our job. That's how we make money. That's how we produce multi-generational businesses that survive the test of time. We are the best ones to make that decision. Now, I know that it's uncomfortable for people to hear that because they, they hear about what we're doing. They hear about how we're using so much fertilizer and we're using so many pesticides and we're monocropping and we're destroying the environment. What people are hearing is driven by people who seem to have a bit of an agenda in this. They're driven by people who have never run an actual farm. They're driven by people who don't know what it's like to run an actual farm and make a living from it and depend on mother nature as to whether you're going to be able to feed your family or not. So I get frustrated by people who, who come in and say, you guys are doing this wrong, that wrong, and this other thing, and this is the way you need to do it when they haven't had that experience. Now, that's not to say that you can't have an opinion about something without living it. That's certainly not the case. We all have opinions about piles of things that we don't, you know, have any personal experience with and a lot of cases don't know that much about. I'm guilty of it too. But if we're going to have discussions at the policy level about these types of things, these types of rules, these types of regulations, there damn well better be farmers involved with those conversations. That's where I'm coming from with a lot of what I'm saying. Farmers should be involved all the way through to the policy that's made at the highest level of government to make these sorts of decisions because we understand our soils better than anyone. Thanks once again to Jake. I'll be posting the link to his blog on the show notes for this episode where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. Now, if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Well, that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast so you don't miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.